Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Will with Schedule Fly. This is our second interview with Karen Hoskin. Uh, so if you want to hear her backstory, scroll back in, uh, it was probably a couple years ago that we first interviewed Karen. She owns Montana Distillers out in Crested Butte, Colorado. Just a great person, great business owner, great success story. Uh, from what I understand, her rum is phenomenal. <laughs> I've heard great things about it. I haven't been able to get my hands on any yet here in North Carolina, but I hope to. But Karen recently raised a big round of venture capital, and I actually asked her to be on the podcast to talk about that and what she's going to do with it. Well, we've already both agreed we're going to have to have another episode to talk about what she's going to do with it because we touched on it briefly, but we talked about the challenge of raising capital as a business owner, or excuse me, a female business owner, uh, and particularly in the world of distilleries. So we got into the weeds a lot on that, really interesting. And we got into a lot of philosophical stuff. We got into a lot of the sort of structural um, cultural barriers, obstacles you have to overcome as a female business owner, as a female business owner in hospitality, as a female business owner in distilleries. And we really got in in deep on a lot of stuff. So it's just a great conversation. And I hope you'll enjoy. And I think in a few weeks we'll have the uh, part three of uh, (laughs) Karen Hoskin. It will be our first part three of any owner we've we've ever spoken to. And it's certainly well-deserved because I do want to talk to her about what she's going to do with that money. Nevertheless, here we go. Enjoy. Y'all, we are live. This is Will with Schedulefly, and uh, this is a special interview today. I'm very excited to catch up with Karen Hoskin, uh, who owns Montana Distillers in Crested Butte, Colorado. She's been on the podcast before. It's been a year or two, and a lot has happened uh, at Montana since then. Um, a very big event happened recently, but I know Karen, if you I mean, if you follow them on Instagram, she's she's just she's all over the place she travels she's got a great team of people she's a I was just really impressed by uh, her leadership style and her hustle and vigor and passion for her business the last time we talked and I know that's only increased Karen I'm sure since then so uh, uh, thanks for taking the time because I know you're a very busy busy lady my pleasure uh, all right well Tell us about what happened recently uh, in your business. Well, um, in July, mid-July, I closed a venture capital deal, which, you know, may not sound that interesting because companies do it all the time, all day long in, you know, Silicon Valley and et cetera. But it really actually was a big deal because unbeknownst to most people, women-owned companies only get about 2.9% of the venture capital deals in America, period. Wait, 2.9% of all venture capital deals across industry? Exactly. Really? And what percent of businesses are owned by women? 41%. Ooh, this is interesting. Okay, there's a lot to unpack. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry I interrupted. This is interesting. That's okay. It's, It's, you know, it was shocking to me when I first learned those statistics and you know i talk a lot about them when i travel and when i speak publicly um, and i have for years 
Um, I've been very connected to the McKinsey Institute, which does a lot of this research, Hmm. um, as well as, you know, some of the online resources that are tracking data on venture capital in America. And so when I was going out for, you know, looking for capital to grow my company, I was really just dejected by the numbers. I thought, wow, if it takes 100 asks for normal business owners to get a venture capital deal, then what does it mean if I, if I am a female-owned company and my statistics look abysmal in comparison? So uh, I, was, I was definitely concerned about how this might go, um, but I am very excited to say that because in part of the attention that I've been drawing to the issues nationally, um, some of the larger alcohol beverage companies in the world are starting to recognize that they're perpetuating those stereotypes and those, um, you know, statistics and that they actually need to make some concerted efforts to change those paradigms. And so um, one of the big ones, which is Constellation Brands, they're a publicly traded Fortune 500 alcohol beverage company in the U.S., um, decided to allocate $100 million of their venture capital funds toward investing in in women-owned companies, female founders, et cetera. So, a hundred million um, over over what period of time? Just going forward. Well, over ten years, okay. which you know, in That's in a lot of money. In some ways, um, is maybe just reinforcing the statistics because Constellation has a lot of money to invest, um, and whether we don't know exactly how much that is, and I hope that uh, maybe this fund represents 10% or something of their total resources, um, which would be an increase over what has been available uh, in the past. But either way, um, it doesn't necessarily matter because they made a a concerted effort and we sort of mutually contacted each other because they knew that my company was well known among female founders i was definitely one of the first female founders in the craft craft spirits world in the u.s um and had one of the faster growing companies in the craft spirits world in the u.s and so um we sat down in january of 2018 and or sorry 2019 and i pitched them uh, and they said yes in April, and it took us, you know, months of diligence, as it always does. But I was very proud of, you know, getting through the diligence process and realizing that I have, you know, good filing, you know, of all my various reports and every tax I've ever paid and, and all of those things. And so it wasn't that hard to give them the data that they needed, and we closed on July 18th. Um, so they now own a, mon- a minority share of my company. I'm still in the driver's seat. I still head the board. I still get to um, really set the course of the company. Um, but I have m- the kind of financial backing that I have needed for a decade. Well, congratulations. That is extremely Thank exciting. You. And <laughs> Uh, clearly a long time coming. And I want, I want to ask you about a few things. Where do we start? One is I want to ask about where, how you're going to use that capital. But I want to get back to the, before we do that, let's talk more about women-owned businesses. And, okay, so, because this is so fascinating to me. Uh, I have a daughter, and uh, she's 15, and we're, 
in the process right now uh, of she's a, she rides horses and she's a really good artist. And, you know, we make those schedule fly hats. Um, and so I've got good hat makers and I'm <laughs> teaching her to like, we're going to set her up a website. She's going to, she has a design that she's going to use and, you know, she's going to try to sell them. I'm really trying to encourage the entrepreneurial spirit, not that, you know, she'll do whatever she wants to do one day, but I think learning that early on and what it takes to make a product and sell a product and all that stuff is really meaningful. Um, and I, I'm really excited for her to kind of go through this process with me by her side a little bit, you know, just nudging with a little experience and stuff like that, but letting her kind of find her way. Sorry for the long, that was my personal thing, but we're really in the process of that right now. And I'm really fascinated about women-owned businesses and these statistics. Okay. So are, are those statistics, how do they apply to the um, hospitality industry or to, I guess, maybe uh, distilleries and maybe breweries or is it the same or are there many more men owned distilleries and breweries is that like why why is that yeah. why are those statistics what they is it because people just don't think women can or haven't thought women could run businesses successfully or is it just because there's so few in certain industries that are owned by women or so this is this is such a good opportunity for me to dispel some of the myths that are out there. Yes. Um, because the, the you you just touched on so many topics that are both <laughs> prevalent in the thinking in the U.S. and also patently wrong okay. in the thinking in the U.S. So not that what you said was wrong, but that. Um, there are presumptions out there that reinforce things that aren't correct. So the the first thing I would say is that um, women-owned companies outperform male-owned companies. Every dollar venture that they do receive, which Mm. of course we know is is incredibly low, but when they do get it, they return double the returns to their investors that – their male-owned counterpart companies return. So there's nothing in the statistics that said that says these companies won't perform. Gotcha. The second thing that happens is that the the organizational groups that are decision makers around venture capital and bank lending, et cetera, are 97% men. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And we know that when you're reviewing someone for a risk-taking venture, whether it's investment, whether it's a loan, uh, whatever, you know, any kind of of financial support, people are more likely to look for someone who reminds them of themselves. If they perceive themselves to be successful and, and, you know, excellent decision makers and discerning, et cetera, they're going to look for themselves. And it's part of the reason that women don't receive venture capital and bank lending in the same, at the same rates. And it's part of the reason that people of color, uh, and, and, you know, inner city urban people, et cetera, don't receive the same rates of investment is because they are simply unfamiliar to the decision makers. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we have to do as a culture, and I don't know if you just recently heard, but Melinda Gates just allocated a billion dollars to this effort, which is amazing. Um, but to what you know, effort? To funding to, women-owned businesses through VC? Not necessarily to the investment in women-owned businesses, but to changing the culture around the decision making and around the 
education and around the support and around the politics. So okay. she, her, her effort is on many different levels. Um, but one of the things that she recognizes as do I is that we have to go to the root of the problem and the root of the problem isn't whether there are businesses that need the capital, whether there are strong women who've received good educations and can, you know, run and operate excellent companies. It's really that the decision-making bodies have to change. So we have to convince these venture capital companies to include more women on their decision-making bodies. That's kind of the first step. Um, this, the second thing is that we really have to understand what the barriers are to women kind of accelerating through the business world. So if you look at the graphics, it's hard for me because we're doing an audio piece. I wish I could show you this visually, but picture a, a, a pipeline that is wide at the beginning and really narrow at the end. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, that will represent women coming into business ownership, into the workforce, into um, whatever. And at the end of the pipeline where it's really narrow is the C-suite or the ownership or the leadership or the board presidents or the, you know, et cetera, um, high level people operating in business. And women, the, the percentage makeup of women from the beginning of that pipeline to the end goes from almost 50% down to about, you know, between 15 and, and 17%. And so we, we have to understand why that's happening. And if, you know, I go out and I talk about this a lot and I ask people, you know, what would you, what do you think is the reason? And I do this in groups of college students or, you know, um, craft distillers, or it doesn't really matter. And pretty much everybody will always come up with the most common myth, which is that, you know, women want to have better balance in their lives. They're not really willing to work as hard as men are, are going to have children and they're going to bail out of the workforce at some point. And, right disappear. Um, and that's going to make them uncompetitive. If they're business owners, you know, and they're growing a business and they have a child or they have a, a parent who is ill or something, they're more likely to um, check out, go do something different and put the business last on their list. Mm -hmm. And the McKinsey Institute really determined in lots of quantitative research that that wasn't true, that 2% of women in general across all um, you know, races and ethnicities, 2% of women want to follow that model. They want to check out to take care of an elderly parent or check out to take care of their kids, take extended time off, not put, put their professional lives first. So that's kind of the first myth that is out there that we're that I'm working to dispel because that, you know, for me, I've been in business now with Montagna for 11 years and um, I had two children in that time. And I, I never once, uh, you know, decided I wanted to, to stop working or stop investing in my company or stop traveling or whatever for the sake of my kids. My kids are amazing and they're, you know, 19 and 21 now, and they're both, in college and doing great and they've you know fledged from my little nest and they're they're certainly not at any disadvantage for me being a working mom yeah. so you know then like this could this conversation could go on for a really long time and i don't want to over 
kind of analyze it. But what really does happen, and this was my experience for sure, is that the barriers that we encounter again and again and again can be so demoralizing. Um, So whether it be that, you know, you you go into a, a an opportunity to buy for me, let's say a, a pump or a still or a bottle bottling line or you know uh, corks and labels and you know me for me I'm in the hospitality business as well. I run a restaurant, I run a bar, um, you know, over and over and over. I was mistaken for someone who had no clout in my own business. Right, I was. I, it took me roughly twice as long to convince most of my strategic partners that I had a brain in my head and that I was actually going to be able to, you know, come into a partnership as an equal. Um, and I was regularly sexually harassed and, um, and, you know, treated not as a professional, but especially because I'm in the alcohol business. So I operate in a bar environment, mm. in, a, in a beverage environment, in a restaurant environment. We know that that is rife within these industries. And, um, and we are regularly mistaken for having goals and objectives that aren't actually our own goals, like we described. So, you know, those kinds of barriers tend to um, put women in a position of saying, why am I banging my head against this wall? Um, this is not satisfying. And so they go on to some other, other work, you know, they, they don't compete for the street at a business. They don't become a general manager. They don't take over. Um, and so those are really the problems that I'm working to solve. Wow. You're okay. So yes. Well, first of all, you have a, um, you have an interview with the New York Times after this, which is um, part of the reason we won't talk as long as we could. Because I'll be honest with you, I could probably, like, I'd kind of like to get on a plane and fly out there and sit down and have some rum with you and rap about this for half a day. Because I'm very fascinated, both as a father, <clears throat> as a husband, and as a business person. Um, now, yeah. the, okay, so let's, okay, VC firms, the, to me... That's I'm fascinated with with this skew because if you're an investor, you want to get the highest return. Like it shouldn't matter. Why does it matter? Maybe it's subconscious cognitive biases, and maybe that's what you're talking about. With people tend to find people that you know they you know. So if I'm a white guy, I'm probably looking at a white guy and saying, "Okay, I can relate to this guy," versus a black female or something I, I don't know maybe and maybe it's not conscious maybe it's subconscious but gosh you would think that the education a lot of that is around what you're talking about the metrics and the return because dude if if women are returning twice as much then why you know like i mean it's called the quote smart money then the smart money ought to be following you know women that are doing a phenomenal job because that's all that matters. Like if I'm an investor, that's what matters. My job is to take my investors' money and give them their best return. So if I'm in VC or I'm in private equity or I'm an angel investor, whatever it is, I ought to be looking for the best opportunity, not the best opportunity by somebody that... And by the way, the, you know, that would go in reverse too. Like there, you, you should be colorblind, sexblind. I mean, right, ultimately. You now that's theoretically that's not reality we know that 
But what I think I'm hearing is we need to get people moving in that direction that you're looking for the return, period. But you have to nudge people more towards women now because it's so unfairly skewed uh, and has been towards men, both in terms of the investments that are made and the decision makers that are on those decisioning panels. And frankly, the the VC firms need to have more women then because if that subconscious bias is there and it's going to take us time to educate people out of that, you need people in there that have that immediate connection with somebody that says, gosh, Karen or Karen's peer in this uh, you know similar space is going to crush it. And I I understand why, because I can relate to that person. Does that make sense or am I just? No, I mean, it does. It makes tons of sense. And, and, you know, the reality is that we have to kind of educate, I guess. So um, at the Aspen Ideas Festival a couple of summers ago, um, a VC owner came and spoke and really started delving into some of this deep analytic data and the shock wave through the audience was so intense because you know most people like so if women are only getting in 2017 it was only two percent it's up to 2.9 percent in 2018 so we're you know someone there was an article somewhere that was like oh you know huge gains made by yeah but it's still right i had to chuckle i was like okay well maybe we should actually talk about the numbers and not just the percentages but okay some progress um, but at the at this ideas festival, you know, just talking about the returns that women are producing with the tiny amount of venture that they're getting was so shocking to people in that room. And that's a pretty high level group. But they just don't know. You know, they're working every day. They're busy. They're traveling. They're getting on planes all day long. And they're like, I don't have time to really, you know, analyze all of this. And those women are only, you know, two percent. 2.9% of the money anyway. So if we if they were getting 80% of the money, would they would this really bear out? Um and so I think you know we we don't have a good um an, an environment in which to analyze this. Um and so really I think um what we do know is that people prefer people who are familiar. And that's true when you're a you know, general manager of a restaurant and you're hiring your um, group of employees. It's true when you're a distillery owner, like you, you know, when I go to the um, conferences, the industry conferences in my working world, um, I'm often, you know, 7% of a room will be women because my industry is so male dominated and it's so white male dominated. Yeah. Um, I went to a conference last March and I, took a a panoramic photo of the keynote speech and all the people around me. And, you know, you could see, you could pick out like the four women in the picture. Um, and it was all the rest was, was white men. And, you know, that's just simply the reality of the industry that I work in. Um, and that's partly caused by the, the money that is available. Um, if I'm a female distiller and I want to start a company, um, and I can't get access to capital, well, how am I going to do that exactly? You know, so I just happened to be super scrappy and I, um, you know, I started it with 50,000 bucks out of my own savings account 
and um, built it really slowly. I mean, double digits a year, but still slower than I could have over the last decade because I had to cash flow everything. And most of my peers were not having to do that. I had I had friends in the craft distilling industry with companies that had smaller volumes and sh- and lower growth than I did, who were getting the lion's share of the money um, from investment. And so, you know, it was it was hard. Um, did you try but, to raise money early on, or did, or did you? Because you are scrappy, yeah. and you did okay. <laughs> From about year five, I started okay. trying to take on investment for the first time because I was growing at about twenty seven percent a year and I needed to add a still and I needed to I went from 800 square feet the, yeah. my first distillery space was 800 square feet and that included a bar um, and up to now I have 5800 square feet um, which is still you know by many distillery standards pr- still pretty small sure but there's been something about my environment of scarcity that has helped me to grow in a really um, efficient and sustainable way, which means now that I have have real resources behind me, um, I can I can grow using those same principles that I've brought to bear for you know since day one. Why doesn't somebody go? Maybe there, maybe this exists. I don't know. This is so fascinating to me. It seems like it would make a lot of sense for a a, a bunch of successful women to go start a VC fund and focus on women owned businesses. And, and help level the playing field. Cause what I'm hearing is you, um, you have already, it's interesting to me. Like I would think that somebody that's made it particularly in an industry like yours, that is so male dominated and that has had to overcome all these basic obstacles that men don't even think about like sexual harassment, like thinking that, you know, Oh, it's, you know, she doesn't have a head on her show. All the stuff you mentioned, if you've overcome that and built a successful business, You've had to, you've had to overcome so many more things that you're much more likely to succeed. I would think in that space, uh, the odds. In, in other words, if I'm looking at just just as an investor and I'm looking at the odds, I would think that your likelihood of succeeding is, quite frankly, a lot higher than the average ma- white male, you know, owner of a distillery. It would seem like that there's a lot of room for women to. You know, and maybe the capital's not there. I don't know, but like, it seems like women should get together and and have VC firms that look for women-owned businesses because they can relate, and because they understand the obstacles that a man just doesn't inherently understand because he hasn't been in that situation. You know, that does exist. Um, I would say those companies are primarily focused on building related companies so Building i have encountered tech oh te- yeah sure um, you know, okay so technology companies um, exactly i i had the privilege of getting invited to go to a, an event in new york last year that was hosted by vanity fair uh, i think it was only like 400 women were and we were all either ceos owners founders of companies um and they brought in this just incredible um list of women who spoke from the stage and they were interviewed by high level women in the media um and so you know like i got to listen to the founder of stitch fix which is was the first yeah i think it was the first public woman-owned pub 
company to go public. Right. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar company. And it was so there were people in that room and in that were being interviewed about these challenges in, in finance and venture. And um, there were some companies on the stage that are, you know, groups of men or led by women that are raising capital for women owned companies and they're putting they're very strategic about how they're doing this and they're really you know t walking the walk and also telling the story which is critical because uh, we can walk the walk all day but as long but if people don't know about it then it's not going to change a pattern um, that exists but they had really um, targeted the technology world because the tech the tech world is so uh, male dominated and has been so historically exclusive to women um, and women weren't even really being well trained so one of the one of the conversations that I have loved over the last year is the president of Harvey Mudd out in California which is an engineering school and she talks about how she's turned the entire way of teaching computer programming and engineering on its head in order to make it uh, attractive to women. Um, and so women coming into those programs really need to know, like, what is, you know, what is the end use of this, what I'm doing, this programming task, this, you know, coding task, this engineering task. And so if you change the way the whole thing is being taught at the college level, you can retain your, you know, 50% 51% enrollment of female students through the program instead of having them drop like flies, like as they do in other hmm. programs. And, um, and they're putting out highly trained women into the workforce who are better able and better capable to succeed. But, you know, you have to reel it so far back to like the messages that we send to girls when they are five and six and seven years old. So I was raised, you know, I'm 51, right? So yeah. my dad was an entrepreneur. He, he didn't even cross his mind. I mean, he was actually pretty liberal minded and not a sexist in any way um, that I remember. He passed away 21 years ago, but, um, you know, it just would, it didn't cross his mind that I would ever become a business owner or an entrepreneur myself. Um, and so I didn't get those coaching elements, those generational mentorship elements that you're describing with your daughter um, of cultivating her entrepreneurialism and helping her set up a website. And, um, you know, I just I'm so grateful to hear you say that you're even thinking about that because that's really how far we have to reel this back is to kids um, in school, kids in their families being receiving messaging that they can actually do whatever they want to do. If they want to be an entrepreneur, if they want to start a company, like you can do this. And then they have to actually receive education that isn't also gender biased. Mm. Um, you know, like you probably don't want to go into engineering, but you might want to get a graphic design degree or a marketing degree. Um, you know, I heard those messages all the way through my life. Um, and I think, you know, then we have to make sure that once women graduate and have start to enter the job world, that they're not immediately um, 
that they aren't immediately exposed to what they what McKinsey Institute calls all day microaggressions. You know, these little these little messages and these little moments of like, yeah, well, it's great that you're here, but um, you can stay over here and do this little bit of work because you know I'm I'm the guy and I'm gonna be the one that advances and succeeds. And those messages are rife. I mean, luckily women are starting to push past them and succeed and you know i'm actually releasing a rum and in the end of october that celebrates the women in the craft spirits world that have really crashed the glass ceilings that i've watched over you know there was nobody 10 years ago and now we have all these really interesting and successful um women in the business which i'm really excited about um but anyway to make a long story short we have a lot of work to do and we're not even close to having made progress i don't think well the um which is uh, well you know what <laughs> there's a um there's a video that uh i call it the best three minutes on youtube and um but it's this guy he's a former now i'm going to get into you know that he's a former navy seal so for me oh. like that but he talks about how i listen to him his name's jocko willink i'll send you the link i've talked about it on like every episode people that listen to this podcast are probably tired of hearing me talk about it but that's okay <laughs> it's like three minutes and he talks about how when his his guy his, his guys would come to him and they'd be like we've got this problem and they said that his response was always good like every time they come they go, oh man we we didn't we didn't get that mission we wanted he'd say Good. More time to train. We're not going to get all this new equipment. Some other some other team got it. Good. Gives us an opportunity to stay nimble. So he would take every problem and say, good, and find how do we take that and leverage that to our advantage to make us better, physically, mentally, whatever the case may be. It really changed. It uh, changed. It, it crystallized for me something that's been inherent in my head for a long time, but I couldn't articulate it the way he did so well which is the, the problems are can be good if we use those as ways to grow and get better, right? So in other words, like this is a good thing in the sense that it gives you the opportunity to um, foster this and push it along and be one of the people that spearhead this movement. And it gives me the opportunity to take my daughter and say, look, you know, this may not be something that, you know, you, other people, other dads might be doing with their kids, but I, I, I think it's really important. With the caveat, by the way, that I also am very cautious of not pushing her too far in one direction that I want her to go in that may not be something. You know, she actually wants to be a large animal vet, so I'm very careful like not to you know, be like, no, you need to be an entrepreneur because I was. Like, I want her to be what she wants to be, <laughs> but I also want her to learn. I think it's a good like trial and error and do, doing things and the, the, the signal – and that you get from that and the feedback you get is so useful so whether whatever she wants to do I think just doing it early is really meaningful it took me a long time I didn't get a lot of that and as an entrepreneur it took me a long time to learn a lot of lessons that I had to come to by trial and error and making mistakes which is also very useful and that's how you learn a lot but having said that I'm excited to just give her something to work on and learn and go oh I here, okay, gosh, my product cost me this much, and if I sell it for that, I'm not going to really make any profit because I, you know. So I think all those things are just neat. I get excited about them, so I, you know, I look forward to it a lot. And she's also and a, a brilliant artist who 
and this may get to your point. She, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know where, I have some ideas of where it comes from. I think some of it's genetic, but she's hard on herself. So she's really good at art. She's like, ah, it's no good. Or I can't, you know, and I'm like, no, you like what you tell your brain, what you tell your mind is, you know, you can manifest a lot of this stuff simply by how you perceive yourself. And so women need to learn, perceive yourself as valuable and as great and as somebody that can do whatever they want. Like you said, you need to tell yourself that you need to tell yourself that early and often, and you need your parents and your mentors and your teachers and your, you need everybody telling you that because that's, we all need that, right? You, you need that. And particularly with all the obstacles that you have to face as a female entrepreneur, you need it even more probably because it's, uh, it's hard. I mean, entrepreneurship's a hard road, period. It's lonely, and it's tough, and it's challenging. And I can't even imagine what it must have been like for you to do that in in the space you did it in. I mean, I tip my hat immensely, and I have a, a massive amount of respect for you, Karen, because not only of what you've done, but then what you're you're trying to do for the greater good. It's, like, very inspiring, and I have chills. Literally, I, like, you know, like I said, we don't have the video. Like you said earlier, I do. Uh, because you inspire yeah, me I appreciate a lot. It. It's, no, truly. It's been, it has been an intense road. And, and one of the things that I've been working on over the last five years or so is, you know, to recognize all the moments at which I almost tossed in the towel and really analyze like what was happening in that moment mm. and why was it so, you know, demoralizing. And um, I was able to pinpoint really that, almost every moment was one in which I was um, really forced to only listen to my own self-reinforcing voice and really cut out the noise of all of the voices that were saying, you know, this isn't going to work. I don't know why you think this is going to happen. Or, you know, all the questioning, uh, voices that were like, I don't know why you could possibly think this is going to work. These are your um, voices or other people's voices? Other people's voices, okay. you know? So, so you didn't I, have these inside your head. This was coming externally. Oh, it was so external. And yeah. I, I started to learn, like I, I've learned that I have a visceral kind of physical reaction sometimes when someone is saying something and I have to really listen to those body cues because sometimes I would get to, you know, two days later and I'd still be mad about something and I'd be Mm. like, what happened there? And I've learned that like my, my brain is communicating with me when I'm in a conversation and someone is, is saying something. It just has happened probably five times in the last two weeks where I'll be talking with someone, let's say, about a new hire. Okay. Um, so um, not someone that I'm interviewing necessarily, but someone is interviewing for a position that impacts my business. So a sales rep or you know, a distributor rep or whatever. And the person who is describing the candidates is, is using all male pronouns. So they'll say, well, you know, he's, he's going to want a piece of this, you know, he's going to want this kind of package and he's going to, Oh, they're assuming it's going to be a male. And yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah, that's silly. So there I am in this conversation. This just happened, you know, last Friday. Um, So the first thing I have to do is, is speak up which is really difficult. How do you speak up? What does that look like? 
What do you say? That looks like me saying, I, I'm just going to point out that you're using all male pronouns, pronouns to describe this candidate. And I would like, as a female business owner, for you to also be considering female candidates for this position that affects my brand. Um, what does somebody say when you say that? Oh, my gosh, uh, I, I don't know what I was thinking or what, like what's. Yeah, you know, I, a lot of times what people say, the most common response I get is, I'm sorry, I'm an old guy. I, ah. I haven't figured all this out yet. You know, these are 60 year old people who are, you know, kind of having to reevaluate their own language and their own patterns and uh, their own, you know, yeah. reinforcements of the mm-hmm. stereotypes. Um, so first of all, I put my relationship with this key strategic partner at risk by by piping up and opening my mouth, which is really uncomfortable yeah. and not common to my male colleagues. Yeah. Um, but then the second thing that happens is, you know, I then have to become a coach of this person who's Correct. more experienced and more and you know inevitably older probably than I am and an expert in their field and start to say, here are some ways in which you could maybe attract some female applicants for this position. People of color, how many applicants of color do you have for this position? Have you asked that question? Right. Um, You know, I, because we are um, all guilty, like every single one of us is guilty of having our presuppositions or our our assumptions that Mm. we don't, we're not even conscious of. Um, and so, you know, then I'm in this weird upside down role that makes me look like a whippersnapper. You know, that's what my grandmother used to call me. And, you know, or whatever it is, my mom says, you know, occasionally will throw out a, a, a descriptive term for me that is clearly not a compliment because I'm, you know, acting, she feels more like a man and she was raised in a more traditional debutante environment. And Mm. she's just vexed by me sometimes. Where was your mom raised? Um, She was raised in Westchester County, New York. Ah, okay. She was a debutante. She was, you know, stay-at-home mom, really traditional upbringing. Mm -hmm. And um, when my dad passed away 21 years ago, she was completely cut adrift by never having paid the bills, never having written a check for anything, you know, like a mortgage or whatever. And um, I I spent many years being really angry at my dad, who is was like my my hero, my idol in life. Yeah. Um, but just like, wow, you know, you like set her up to have no skills. That society, everything, set her up to have no skills to manage her life going forward without this male provider. And yeah. you know, so I've kind of come of age in, in this time of of That's women so beginning to have to really own a lot of roles in life um, that we never had, that my mom didn't have and my grandmother certainly didn't have. You know, and if you had the conversation with your dad, uh, did you have the conversation with him? You say you were angry. Was that after he passed? Because I was more angry after he died. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was just like, it didn't, he put me in charge of her financial world um yeah as as a trustee and um that also created this really crazy upside down relationship where she was supposed to be the parent and i was supposed to be the child and all of a sudden i was acting as the parent and it really created a troubled relationship between us for many years as i was trying to help her to understand how to manage her money and 
she was just trying to figure out how to spend it all. And I was like, oh, geez, you know, so finally I had to give up that role to a male of her generation because that was really the only person that she would put any confidence in their advice. Mm. Mm. You know, God, this stuff is so fascinating to me. I still, I'm always trying to learn how much of this, how much is nature? How much is nurture? Where is, you know, like, gosh, I mean, I'm in North Carolina, Karen, I'm 45. I was raised in, you know, been in North Carolina my whole life. You talk about traditional, you know, I mean, it's an interesting thing. And I mean, literally, like I I went to, um, I go occasionally to a uh, therapist just to rap about stuff and things that I'm trying to learn because I always like I feel like you never can stop learning and um, that's an every domain in your life and and I, I you know I went and I, it's been a few months and I shook his hand and then we sat down and he's like you're aggressive and I was like huh he goes well you shook my hand normally when you go somewhere it's the per- I'm not a handshaker but I did it because I didn't want to be you know not polite but he goes if you go to somebody else's place of business or their house should it typically be them that offers their hands? Like God, well, no, I didn't. I don't know. I, mean, I hadn't thought about that. It was so funny you said it because he goes, "That's a." He goes, "It's subtle, but it's a microaggressive thing. It's establishing dominance." Will and I was like, "Wow, okay." Whoa! This was like right before I came to this call. Like that's where I came from, and it put me in a. And then you mentioned that, so this is an interesting kind of cosmic thing where I'm going. Okay, the universe is probably telling me something right now. Uh, but not to get into my stuff, but it's, it's a fascinating, all this stuff is really interesting to me. Uh, and I share your, your interest, uh, in a very high level of really understanding this and trying to break it down and coming from a traditional background and not really buying into that, but then finding myself, frankly, you know, I'm an only child. My mom has a lot of you know, things that I'm helping with. Or I've told my wife a lot of times, I wish I had a sister. That's just such a, tr- <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what a, tr- I hope that doesn't offend you. It, no, but I'm just being very uh, transparent and authentic that that's what comes to my mind. But um, so the, um, so anyway, but then I look at it as, a, like I said, as a father and as a husband. And I don't, you know, you don't want to take those traditional things. And gosh, at the end of the day, it, like what really matters? Like you think back to what Dr. King said, you know, it's the content of your character, not the color of your skin. It should be the same thing about, you know, whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is the person a good person? Do they want to work hard? Do they want to give you a good return on your investment? If you're an investor, do they want to be a good partner? If they're, you know, if they, if they're going to be a good salesperson, it doesn't, it's not a him. It's a he or a she. It's a it's it's right, a right. person who's an immigrant, or it's a person who's white, or it's a person who's black, or it's a person who's disabled. I don't know. Like it doesn't matter. Those things shouldn't matter. But those cognitive biases are wired in hard sometimes. And what you're doing, while it's probably challenging uh, to think, okay, now I have to coach. You're, you're helping that person become a better person. Like even if they don't realize it right then, you're going to plant seeds that help that person. And, all these little seeds that we plant make the world, you know, a little bit better and move it in the right direction, Karen. I, I believe that. Well, and I, I just yesterday saw a comment on a comment string on Facebook. Um, you know, there was so there's been a very big flap going on in the in the bartending community um, this week because a gentleman named Charles Schumann was uh, was he won a 
the 2019 Lifetime Achievement Award from 50 Best, which you probably are familiar with. They do like 50 Best Bars, 50 Best Bartenders, 50 Best Alcohol Beverage people and he um he won it and you know he's quite famous in the world of female bartenders for having said that there's no place for women in the bar after 3 p.m wow Uh, we shouldn't have female bartenders working the night shift um the important characters in the bar world are men etc why what is his rationale for that just well he's he's an older guy and you know we could we could let him off the hook by saying that he was raised in a different generation he's german whatever but but the female bartending community is rising up and saying no like he needs to either own that these things that he said are wrong and that he has you know come of age in a time where he's come to understand that there's a role and a place for women bartenders and that they are equals um, in the eyes of their peers, et cetera. And then it would probably all be okay, but he's, you know, been unwilling to say those things. And so now there's a big movement among female bartenders. There's a hashtag that's becoming popular, which is, you know, women behind the bar after three. Um, <sighs> and, and so these are the kinds of things that, What's his you know, name? as you were just Charles Schumann, Charles, dude, come on. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, but, you know, imagine if in addition to just really doing a good job at your job, you also had to run the risk of taking a public stand, a political feeling kind of stand from behind your bar, which is maybe not your bar, and so you have a boss, and then you have to worry about whether it's okay with your boss for you to speak up about this um, sexism that might have taken place in the media or whatever. And um, so, you know, those are those are just the ongoing challenges every single day. And then you, you know, if you consider some a person of color, a, a lesbian, a transgendered person, you just heap and layer on top of them much, much more than I contend with. I mean, I have a privileged existence of not only being a white woman, but I also have the benefit of a really high-level education at a back east liberal arts college that's considered sure. to be, you know, the number one liberal arts college in the country. I I am really aware of how privileged my environment was growing up and um, how many opportunities I've had. So, you know, there's just so many layers to it. And there are things that I will inevitably say that, you know, a woman of color who was raised in in Queens might take complete issue. I'm not even aware of, you know, so these are the kinds of things that like we just all have to be a little humble in right. the, what we don't understand, what we don't know, um, and, and work to try to elevate and raise all the people around us. So I live in a community that is 96% white, you yeah. know, I live in a little bubble. And yes. so um, I've made a real effort to keep a scorecard for my company to make sure that I'm actually not just meeting the statistics of what's outside my door in terms of my hiring and my promoting and my management, but also really kind of blowing it out of the water. So we have 36% of our staff as people of color. Um, 
And in the bar and distillery world, you know, it's like 10% women and we have 60% women in my work environment. So I'm just trying to daily, you know, cut the, cut the legs out from under all of these traditions that have been perpetuated that I don't think serve me or my gender or my industry or whatever. Yeah, Charles has got to uh, look. That that's silly. Uh, come on, uh, like we we grow and we change and we get better and we learn. And if you're going to take these silly attitudes, it just doesn't make any sense. Just uh, own it. Just yeah. own it. Well, that's like, what I have I'm a saying. Silly like attitude. That's right. Okay. So what? What? Um, yeah. Look, you you need to get to a point. I think where you go. You got to be self-aware and you got to be vulnerable and you got to say, okay, man, these are areas that, you know, in my life, in my perspective, in my views that I need to grow and, and learn and understand people and ideas that are different from mine. Like, If you don't, it's just kind of like, what's the point? Like, why not, why not try to get better and learn every day and grow every day and improve and, um, to help improve those around you look quite frankly yes you you had a privileged upbringing so you have a lot of responsibility that comes with that same as me I mean I'm all that plus I'm from the south as a white male uh boy so to whom much is given much is expected right like you you can take that privilege and you can leverage it to your advantage and just live a you know live in a bubble and and exclude people all your life and I know plenty of people frankly that do or you, which, and I have no respect for him, or you can take that and go, okay, okay, for some reason I got lucky uh, in life and I've got all these advantages. How do I use those to, um, how can I take that and make that a force multiplier and use leverage to help other people that didn't get those same advantages? Those are wonderful responsibilities that, you, you know, once again, you say, okay, good. I've got this opportunity to make things better because I was given some advantages. Now, how do I, how do I help break down the, the things that gave me those advantages? Right. It's like working yourself out of, jo- out of a job, right? You, you should do that. <laughs> like you should want right. to do that because ultimately that means that you're creating some sort of immense value that, you know, don't live in fear. Don't worry. Don't, don't, if you work yourself out of a job, things are going to go really well for you. I'm convinced of that. Um, it's the same thing in life. If you work yourself out of your built-in structural advantages, things are going to go really well for you. Um, you know, what goes around comes around kind of stuff, right? Right, exactly. Sorry, I'm getting, I get off on these <laughs> tangents. I hope I'm not driving you crazy, but I just... No, it's I, okay. <laughs> I believe what you're saying very much. I think that it's really important, and there's there's so many issues that... You know, Karen, i tell you what. One thing that we've been thinking about is... Uh, I don't know how to do this. Um, I haven't baked it out completely yet, but I think it would be really neat to, if there's a way to do it, to have people like you and other female chefs, owners, people in the hospitality space that have been successful to come together, uh, maybe in Raleigh. Like Ashley Christensen's there. She just won the James Beard Award. It's the best chef in, you know, in the country. Mm-hmm. Like she's doing amazing things. And maybe there's a forum for uh, y'all to come and, you know, have a, I don't know, an event where we raise money and give it to some organization that helps women in hospitality, you know, um, 
build businesses or something. I don't know. I'm just, I'm thinking out loud, but wouldn't it, would it be cool sure. to have y'all come together and have some kind of event and raise money and have an audience and do a YouTube live podcast or something like that and <laughs> talk about this? I stuff? mean, I, I think it would be amazing. I have the privilege of going to something like that every year, um, but it's more industry specific for me. So it's what do you women mean by just the- distillers? No, it's um, it's an organiz- a trade association called Women of the Vine and Spirits. Okay. Um, so it's women, and they're actually current in the process of bringing the beer world under that umbrella as well. Okay. So it's a trade association of women working in alcohol beverage, and it's from you know the last session I went to, I met the one of the head distillers at Jim Beam, who's mm. a, you know, who's been there for 19 years and is a woman. And, you know, it really, it's been so inspiring and empowering because you sit in a room at a keynote there and it's literally like not only all women, but it's all women who are working in the same general industry. Um, and so we all have the same challenges and we share the same um you know, hurdles that we have to clear. And, um, but it's, it's really empowering for me to listen to some of the speakers and um, get inspired by all of the various programs and projects that people have going on. And um, so, you know, I think the biggest challenge to what you're proposing is just the time, energy, and resources of the people you would want to bring together that Mm. we all are called to travel quite often and we're yeah. called to gather at different things quite often. And okay. it's just always hard to put yet another thing on the calendar. But that said, if it's the right thing, if it's the thing that, you know, kind of takes something else off the calendar that was, you know, I, I've quite often said, I will only go to this one now and not to that one because something trumps it or, or elevates above it. And this may be that thing for a lot of women in the hospitality world that is like, that's the one thing I'm going to go to um, this fall or this spring or whatever. Um, But I also, you know, I, I do think in this, in this day and age of, of technological resources that we shouldn't underestimate bringing people together in an online forum where they get to hear the same speakers and interact. Um, but they don't necessarily have to get on a plane, take two or three days off from work or take two or three days away from work and, um, and show up somewhere that can, it's, I think that is really a changing paradigm on networking. Yes. Uh, okay. Really good feedback. I want to, I just, I want to think about this more. Uh, there's some, there, there must be some, cause I feel like that we're really fortunate to serve a lot of really successful, uh, women in hospitality. And if, if there were a way to, because all of you have, you have followings, you have an audience, you have fans, we have people that have, you know, a hundred thousand followers on, uh, social media, you, you know, so if you, if you, pull these resources and you have a a message that will resonate and get to a lot of people through leverage there uh you know as we look to educate people maybe there's a way to do that i don't know i have anyway more to come we'll think about it but maybe you and i can talk more offline you've got your new york Times scene coming up and i do not want to <laughs> eat into that at all i will say that um the one place that 
I really find, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I listen to, um, how I built this. Have you ever listened That's to that? That's one of my favorites. Yes. There's so many good ones on there. Sarah Blakely, the first female billionaire who built Spanx has a great story on there. And there's so many that are inspiring. The Kate Spade one is one I listened to three times and I, it was my favorite one or still, I guess it still is. And I don't know what happened with her. It was so tragic, but that story's absolutely fantastic. And there's so many good ones on there. So if you're, you know, I would recommend that to anybody, especially, um, particularly if you're a female and you know, you're, you're trying to start a business or you're running a business. These things can be like therapy sometimes for all of us uh, that are running businesses to hear people that have been through the same stuff. (laughs) You'll enjoy the story actually, because, um, I was listening to the, how I built this episode, um, that is the founder of new Belgium brewing company, Kim Jordan. And, um, you know, her company was is 28 years old, I think yeah. close to 30 years old. And she, it's a quarter billion dollar company, yeah. um, be, be in the beer space, which was, you know, she was literally the only woman yeah. um, for a very long time and still is in a incredible minority in that in that industry and i was listening to it while i was driving to denver um and she was talking about how she had gone in for a bank loan um and she still had her day job she was a social worker she had just had a baby so she was like nursing a baby at home and she was building this beer company and the um, banker said to her, you know, it took you a week to get your application materials turned in. I just don't think you have the capacity for this, for this loan and turned her down without even reviewing the documents that she had, you know, stayed up until midnight to try to fill in between her day job and her beer company and her baby and everything. And, um, you know, I just, her whole message, she was so unforgiving in some ways. I mean, very gracious and, and elegant, but unforgiving of the barriers that she had to clear early in her career um, and as a woman. And I just like had to pull over on the side of the road because I got choked up and I couldn't see the road anymore. And I so I, like I had to stop and keep listening and like not drive anymore because I could really empathize with everything that she was saying, um, you know, some of the things that people said to her along the way that just, you know, she just had to put them in a box and put them away. And um, so I, yes, I highly recommend my Avon Chenard is literally like my, my hero ah, mine too. in so many ways. <laughs> and that episode just, you know, is, is like sacred time and space to get to spend with him. Oh, okay. Have you have you seen his YouTube video, the speech he gave at that school out in California called The Education of a Reluctant Businessman? Yes, it, I totally have. I've seen it like <laughs> 10 times. I love that. Uh, Yvonne is an amazing, uh, just in so many ways, an amazing person. Uh, the story about New Belgium. Okay. He, last thing I'll say is those episodes, I think, again, it's like one of those things where it's a it's a it's one of those pivotal moments where you get pissed and you go, this is BS and you can let it just destroy you or you can go good. Right. And now I'm going to take that. <laughs> I had one, I was ADD badly and I got, I, I goofed around in college and couldn't find things I was interested in. I interviewed for a bank job and the guy said, uh, I didn't know what I was, I had no clue what I was talking about. He goes, if I were you, I would 
put down the sports page and pick up the business page from now on so you can learn something. And it really made me angry because it was a very condescending way that he said it. He was actually right Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but the way he said it, and I kept it, and it stuck in there. And it it Mm -hmm. has, I mean, I'm 45 now. It's been there all along, and it it fuels me. Like, we can take those and use them as fuel, right? We can use these disadvantages as ways to go, you know what, I'm going to, like, if you're stubborn (laughs) and you're competitive, I'm going to prove you wrong. And it's actually, you can turn it into a, positive in the way that you know you can just always use that I can pull on that anytime I need to to this day I can go I remember that. I remember it I remember his face I remember the way he spoke to me I remember how I felt when I left <laughs> and I went you're wrong I'm going to prove you wrong one day it made me mad and it actually in some ways it's like maybe that was good maybe it was good mm-hmm. that they, that happened to me because it maybe it it was the what I needed to push me over the edge and make me better and maybe that's some of the things that you know a lot of female uh, I mean, gosh, can you imagine thinking about, I bet she's thought many times, I bet you'd like to lend me some money now, dude. And I wouldn't let you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was would hoping he was in the audience because <laughs> it was a live interview at the Boulder Theater or something, oh. and, you know, and, and I, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if he was like, I should go listen to her speak um, yeah, after all these years up. of, you know, the, oh, yeah. The gatekeepers <laughs> are falling all around us, Karen. They are. <laughs> They're everywhere. Finance is like every, the gatekeepers are coming down and it's a good thing because we don't need that stupid stuff. We don't need these things that keep people that, you know, could be successful from doing it. And, uh, whether they're structural or whether they're psychological, like it's stupid. Like we're so much better if it doesn't matter if you're a woman or you're a man or you're whatever color you are or whatever, if you're trans, it doesn't matter. Like if you have a good idea and you're good to people and you want to work hard and you have something to add, do it. Bring it on. Like, let's let people do that. Stop with this stupid shit. Sorry. Anyway. Well, I had, I have one more, a parting story that, um, you know, it's kind of along those same lines. Um, I, we have distribution in California and I often go out and do what are called ride with um, or work with, which is where, you know, you spend the day with a sales rep and they, the sales rep takes you around to different bars or restaurants or liquor stores. um, And I have a, 15 minute window to kind of sell them on Montana rum and get them excited about what we do and Hmm. tell my story, et cetera. And it's rare for them to get to meet an owner or a founder in that environment. Still, you know, the bigger companies have all hired hands. And so, um, you know, my sales rep was like, okay, we're in Oakland, California, and we're about to walk into this restaurant. And I just looked at him. I was like, you're not seriously taking me in here. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, do you, do you even know anything that's going on with this restaurant? It's in the national news. And he was completely out of the loop about the fact that the owner had just been fired from his own restaurant for, you know, literally 19 counts of stalking women home oh, uh, in Uber after work and, oh, God. you know, his own employees and, you know, and I just, I, I was having, we were not even like, 25% into this day of visiting accounts and I literally shocked him so deeply and kind of upset him. You know, he was sort of like, well, who put you in charge? You know, like I'm the one that gets to decide what's a good placement for your, for your brand. And I just went and got back in the car and I was like, I'm not walking in there. No. Um, and that was, you know, that, that was one of those moments of like, 
I really struggled. I could have just walked in there, done my 15 minutes, walked out, and there would have been no tension, no disruption, no him thinking, wow, Karen, she's kind of bitchy, you know, or whatever. Like all of those stereotypes that I just fed myself right into with this guy. Um, but, you know, I had to stand on a sense of, of principle in the work. And that was one of those moments. And it, it describes many moments that I've had over the last 10 years of just like, Oh, here we go. I'm going to have to be that person again. Mm. Um, so I look forward to the day when I don't have to be that person, you know, yeah. when the guy, the, the sales rep is like, you know what, I'm not going to take you into this place because, um, you know, rumor has it, and it's in the news that he's, uh, you know, not been behaving well with his female employees. And I know you're a female-owned company, and I think that will matter to you. And we're going to skip this one today, you know. So yeah. we'll get there. <laughs> well, we're going to get there because of people like you. So awesome. thank you for what you're doing, and uh, uh, we love y'all. I mean, you're you're awesome. I'm I'm so Thanks. just. It's fun Thanks. watching from the side. I do. I pay attention. I, I stay. You know. I, um, I love what you're doing and I'm happy for you and I'm proud of you and, uh, proud of your team. God, I hope I can get out to Crescent one day. Yeah. I want to get out there and <laughs> hang out with y'all and ski more than I can even like, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, it's Do not come. easy to get to, but I got to make it happen. Yeah, definitely. Well, go get them All with right. the New York well, Times. Yeah. Thank when's you. that going to be in there? Will you let, will you send um, me a link when it's up? It's very newsy. Yeah, we're talking about tariffs and trade and this trade war and how it affects craft distillers that are exporting overseas, which I am. Um, yeah. and so, you know, what's going to happen when uh, there are retaliatory tariffs based on what's been happening with mm. the, this news with Trump. So wish me luck. Good luck. Well, yeah, send me a link <laughs> when it's up and uh, I'm going to send okay. you the link to that Jocko video. Go check it out. It's good. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye, Karen. See you. Bye.